It's great to have you here. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 today, uh, moving on to a new chapter. We spent the last three or four weeks in chapter 2 talking about humility. And uh, this week, we're going to see that right out of the gates, Paul is going to make a transition. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So right away, you see this word further, okay, we take note, we've talked about transition words. Paul's going to move on to a new topic. He's going to say further. Here's something else that I wanted to tell you about. And I love the way he uses the term my brothers and sisters. These people are not to Paul just some project, um, just, just some, some financial backers that he needs to get in touch with. Paul sees these Philippians as family. And we've seen this as we've traveled through the first two chapters, how intimately he knows them and he cares about them. He's given his life for them. And so he says, my brothers and sisters, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. And this call to rejoice in the Lord, I think, kind of sets a tone uh, for this chapter, um, what, what he's going to be calling us to. It's an issue of identity. And he says, don't boast, don't find joy, because you can't find joy in who you are and what you've done on your own. This is the only place that we're going to find true joy is, is who we are in Christ and all of the wonderful things that he's done for us. What we're going to look at this morning is we're going to go back to math class. We thought it was summer break. We tricked you. The, the equation, the formula we're going to look at is Christ plus anything equals nothing. Christ plus anything. You add anything to Christ and you get nothing. And we're going to explain what we mean by that. So let's look here at verse 1. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul says, I- I'm going to revisit something that we've talked about before, but I'm not worried about going over it again. In fact, it's necessary. It's a safeguard. It's for your own well-being that I do that. And I think this is such a good word for us We live in a culture today that is always immediately moving on to the next thing. You think about the 24-7 news cycle that we live in, especially now with social media and, you know, iPhones and, and, and Androids that we hold in our hands and we can instantly get news and will there be some tragedy that will come on our phone and we look at it and we think about it and then it's just swipe on to the next story. And, and, and we do that, I mean, especially with the invention of things like Snapchat. I mean, this is a system, this, the whole thing is you can look at the picture for like 10 seconds and then you can literally never see it again unless you screenshot, okay? And then you can hold on to it. We've learned that trick. So we're just always moving on to the next thing. And, and what Paul is saying is no, 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 no. We don't need to move on. We need to revisit this thing right here. And, and, I, and there's the words of John Piper that were echoing in my mind as I read this. John said once, he said, you don't have to know a lot of things. You don't have to know a lot of things, but you do have to know the few great things that matter and be willing to live for them and die for them. He says, it's not about getting more information. We don't just need to keep on moving on to know more, to go deeper into something new. He says, it's just having to know a few things and to know them deeply and to know them well and to know them to the extent that you're willing to lay your life on the line for them. You see, Paul is going to talk about the gospel. 
And you can almost hear the groan with the Philippians as he goes to that topic. Paul, we know the gospel, right? We're a bunch of believers. The gospel is for the unsaved. We get it. Sin, cross, Jesus, Romans Road, wordless book, altar call, yada, yada, yada. We get it. Let's move on. What's the new thing that you have for us? And don't we often think that? Well, the gospel, that's just a tract you hand out to people who don't know Jesus. We got it. Let's move on. Well, this is nothing new. A hundred years ago in the 16th, hundreds of years ago in the 16th century, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he was preaching the gospel um, to his people in church Sunday after Sunday. And the people got fed up with it. And they came up to Martin and they said, Martin, we get it. Like, we, we have the gospel. Why do you keep telling it to us week after week after week? Well, let's move on. And, and Martin said, because week after week you forget it. Because week after week, you come in here looking like a people who have forgotten the gospel. And until we start looking like a people who believe and live out these gospel truths, I'm going to keep preaching it to you. And until the day he died, he kept preaching the gospel. You see, there's something in the deep recesses of our hearts, even as believers, that prevents us from believing the gospel. There's a reason that we need to, that we are exhorted in Scripture to preach, not just on Sunday mornings, Sunday after Sunday, but every single day, you and I need to speak the gospel truth to each other. And that's what Paul is going to address here, is the need for preaching that gospel. He says in verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, Paul is immediately changing his tone. He said, Rejoice in the Lord! Now, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers. Those and, he, and it's like, what is the, the tone shift? What, what is he speaking to here? And I love, I love when Paul gets mouthy. Um, it only happens when he's addressing um, people who are anti-grace. The harshest letter that Paul ever wrote was the book of Galatians. You go back and read that book, and, and he is on fire, okay? And Jesus was the same way. Jesus reserved his, his the most, the, the only time he called people names, the only time he would get ticked off is, is when, he, when people thought they were good enough and they didn't need God. When they thought they could come to him on their own standing and Jesus and Paul, they have no room for that. And so, who is Paul talking to here? Who are these dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh? Well, some, some context will help us. You go back to Genesis. Um, God comes to Abraham. Here's Abraham, 100 years old, okay? Never had a child. And he promises Abraham. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, not only am I going to give you one child, I am actually going to give you descendants, as many as, the, as the, the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. I'm going to make you a great nation. And this nation, we know, to be, they came to be called Israel. And he says, I am going to bless the socks off of your nation, and not just your nation, but through your nation. I'm going to bless all the nations in the world. But my covenant to you as Israel is I will be your God. I will deliver you from your sins, and I will give you the land of Canaan forever. So this is the covenant that God makes with Israel. Now, on Israel's side, on Abraham's side, the sign to show that they kept that covenant was circumcision. So every male descendant that came from Abraham was to be circumcised as a symbol of God's covenant with those people. And not just those who were born, but also those who converted to Judaism were also to be circumcised. It was a sign that distinguished God's people, the Jews, 
from everybody else on earth, the, the Gentiles, okay? If you're in here this morning and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. How you doing? So, if we fast forward now to Jesus, okay? Go hundreds of years later. And, and Jesus comes as the promised deliverer for the people of Israel. And, and we look, look in the book of Acts and the gospel, this salvation through Jesus starts to spread. But, but here's the curveball. It doesn't come just to the Jews. This gospel begins to be preached to the Gentiles as well. Gentiles are being saved without being circumcised. They can have direct access to God through Jesus without having to convert to the Jewish faith. Well, you can imagine, this went over like a lead balloon with the Jews. And they said, there's no way. If you want to go to Jesus, if you want to go to God, you've got to come through us. You've got to keep the law, and you've got to be circumcised. That's the way to God. That's how we've always done it. That's how we will continue to do it. So they have this conference um, in Acts chapter 15. These leaders get together, and they talk about it. And the result of that conference is they recognize, no, salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, regardless of your nationality. But even after that conference, there's these haters. They called them Judaizers, people who thought that you had to become Jewish to be saved. And they start following Paul around, and they start trying to snag his converts, people who come to Jesus, and they try to tell him, no, you've actually also got to follow the law, and you've actually also got to be circumcised. You need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. And it's these Judaizers who say it's not just about the Gentiles have to go, had to become Jews, then you can go to Jesus and you can go to God. And so Paul is talking about these Judaizers when he calls them dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. So, so what does he mean by those terms? Well, the word dogs, like we think of like a cute pet calendar, okay? Like, oh, a puppy, right? But that's not, like when God, when Paul uses the word dogs, they, they in, in that day, in that culture, they were ugly trash-eating scavengers. They were seen as one of the most unclean animals that there were. And so the Jews, they actually referred to Gentiles as dogs, saying, you are unclean. You are outside of the covenant relationship. You don't know God. You are dogs. And so Paul flips the script and says, no, no, actually it's the Judaizers who are unclean. He says, if you're attempting to come to God through the law, you're filthy in his sight. That's his point. And then he says evil workers. He calls them evil workers. He's just calling them out for what they are. If we add to the gospel, it's pure evil, plain and simple. This is they are working evil. And then he says mutilators of the flesh. Now, this was a wordplay in, um, in, uh, in Greek. So the word for circumcision was peritome. Um, but, but what the word Paul uses is catatome which means mutilation. Get it? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it would have killed in a Greek audience. You guys are, yeah, you don't. So what he's saying, he says, look, if you are, you're not calling people to circumcision. You're actually calling them to mutilation, which was, and for them, they would have associated that with a pagan practice or ritual of cutting themselves. You remember back in Galatians, he said, Listen, if you're trying to do this circumcision thing, he goes, I actually wish you'd go the whole way and just castrate yourself, okay? Now, if you're following me, good. If you don't, ask your parents on the way home, and they'll explain that to you. Um, 
So Paul has harsh language for people who believe that you need circumcision for salvation. But then he contrasts it here in verse 3. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. He contrasts the people who believe that you've got to come to God through circumcision with those who he says, it's not about circumcising the outside of us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that circumcises, that changes our hearts and that we come boasting in Christ alone. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But what he says here is they put no confidence in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Now, what is Paul talking about when he talks about this confidence? Confidence in what? Well, the confidence he's referring to is the grounds upon which God will accept me. One day, each of us is going to stand before God. And he is going to ask us, Why should I let you into my heaven, into my kingdom, into my presence? Now, confidence in the flesh is confidence that flesh means like our body or who we are. Confidence in the flesh says, God, you should accept me because of what I've done, because of who I am. It's putting putting hope in yourself. And Paul says, if you want to play that game, if you want to go that route, look at the end of verse 4. If there's someone, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He goes, you want to start comparing resumes? You want to start looking at what, what, what we've accomplished on our own? He says, if there's anyone who deserves approval in God's eyes because of what they've accomplished on earth, it's me, you guys. You've got to check out my resume. And so Paul is going to do that, and this is what he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul gives us seven qualifications that he would have reasons to be accepted by God. Four are by birth and three are by choice. So let's look at these. The first four are by birth. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, so Paul starts with circumcision. Typically not a good icebreaker if you're at a party. Um, he says, you want to talk circumcision? You, 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 because that's what they're basing, they're saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. Goes, I've been there and I've done that. In fact, I was circumcised on the eighth day, y'all. Okay, and the reason that that was so significant was because a true Jewish, uh, someone born of Jewish descent was circumcised on the eighth day of their life. If you were a convert, slaves or foreigners who converted to Judaism, you were just circumcised whenever you were converted. He goes, no, no, I'm a true Jew, circumcised on the eighth day. In fact, he says, I am of the people of Israel meaning my genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham. I wasn't grafted in. I was born of this covenant nation. And he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only was I born of Israel, but I was born of Benjamin. That was significant. You remember Jacob, he had 12 sons, the tribes of Israel. His name was also Israel. Two sons by Rachel. Rachel was his favorite wife, okay? Um, don't play favorites, uh, especially with wives. Polygamy is bad, okay? So he has, he has these two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, with Rachel, and they're his favorite sons. And so Benjamin is often seen as one of the favored sons, and then that continues on. He was, ben, the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin, were, they were very highly esteemed because King Saul, if you remember, Israel's first king, came from the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, there are many who believe that Paul, the Apostle Paul, remember his name was originally Saul, he was named after King Saul, one of his descendants from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, 
And the Benjamites stayed loyal to King David. Um, I remember when the tribes split in the Old Testament? They, the Benjamites stayed true to David and to the southern tribe of Judah. So he says, I'm not just any Jew. I'm a Benjamite, okay? It'd be like saying, I'm not just Italian. I'm a Frankino, okay? <laughs> you laugh, but we are highly esteemed in Italy. <clears throat> and then he goes on, and he goes, no, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Sorry, this is, a, this is not a, uh, a breath mint. It's a, a cough. Uh, what do they call it? Cough drop. Cough drop. But it's doTERRA, so I'm closer to Jesus. Um, so he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, which basically means I was born from two Hebrew parents. Okay? What he's saying is I'm a pure blood. Okay? I'm not a muggle, if you're a Harry Potter fan. Okay? He says, I was born of two Hebrew parents. I spoke Hebrew. I was raised with Hebrew customs. He actually sat under the feet of Gamaliel, which was one of the most honored teachers in, the, in their um, culture at that time. So he goes, I come from good stock, but not only do I come from boastworthy stock, I did a lot of good things with that stock. The next three things are what he did by choice. In regard to the law of Pharisee. Now, when we hear the word Pharisee, we immediately, we have some bad connotations, right? Like even now we kind of associate Pharisee with like a hypocrite or someone who is self-righteous. But in the day, they were actually the, a noble group of leaders who had this really honest attempt to keep God's law as well as they could. This was a group that was formed um, between the Old and New Testaments, that 400 years of silence, that scripture that, that our Bible doesn't mention. And so they had, out of everybody, they had the closest obedience to the law. Like, they followed it to a T. In fact, the Pharisees agreed with Jesus theologically almost point for point. Now, some of the ways that they lived that out, they started to hedge and add some more laws around those laws, and that's where they got into the hypocrisy and the trouble. But they were on the same page with Jesus for the most part. And then if anybody was going to heaven because of keeping the law, it would have been a Pharisee. And then he says, as for zeal persecuting the church. So he goes, not only, not only that I follow the truth, but I opposed everybody who didn't follow the truth. Paul defended the Jewish faith by persecuting the followers of Jesus. Now, of course, we know, and, and he even knows by the time he's writing this, that that was misdirected. And when he had that conversion experience, he realizes that he was actually opposing God, not working for God. But his point is, I was following God much more fervently than any of you pansy Judaizers. And then the last thing he says is, as for righteousness based on law, faultless. Now, this does not mean that Paul was sinless. We know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not what he's saying. But it, what it meant was, outwardly, he kept the law so perfectly that nobody could have pointed a finger at him and said, you missed that one. But what he didn't realize back then, when he was a Pharisee, that all of the outward rule-keeping in the world can't change our hearts. Can't change our hearts. In essence, Paul is saying, I played the church game, y'all. I played the game, and I won. I won. I was the best I was a pure-blooded Jew from Benjamin. I was a trained professional Pharisee who kept the law down to the last detail. I mean, these Pharisees were so crazy. They would tithe, <coughs> excuse me, they would tithe everything in their possession, including everything from their spice rack. Like, you know you're truly godly when you give him 10% of your cinnamon. 
Okay? So they, they were all out keeping the law, doing everything right. They were from the right nation. They were from the right family. They went to church. They were squeaky clean. They were on fire for God. And then he says, but. But. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. The things that I thought validated me, gave me approval before God, the things that I thought were so important, I count them all as lost for the sake of Jesus. And I wonder, I just wonder, if what he had in mind was something that had happened a, little, a year or two before this, Paul was being taken as a prisoner to Rome, and they were on this ship, and the storm comes, and the ship is going to go down. And they say, we need to get rid of all of the cargo so that the ship doesn't sink. And what was seen as gain, what was seen as precious cargo, water, food, essential supplies, was now nothing but a death sentence. Because if we don't get rid of this cargo, we're going down with the ship. And I wonder if Paul is thinking about that time in his life that was pretty recent. And he goes, the things that I thought gave me life, the things that I thought were so, so important in my life, I now see that if I don't get rid of those things and cling to Christ alone as my hope, I'm going down with the ship. And Jesus said, he who tries to save his life will lose it. But if you lose your life, there you will find it. And he goes on to say in verse 8, what is more, I can... Whoa, I bit my doTERRA cough drop. What is more, he said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He says, compared to Christ... Everything else in my life, everything else about me and my identity, it's garbage. And this word that he uses, it's a Greek word, skubalon. I'm probably butchering that, huh, Pastor Chuck? That's what happens when you don't go to seminary. It can mean a couple different things. One thing is that it can mean scraps from the table that are thrown away as garbage for the dogs. Okay, and that would make sense if he's referencing dogs again, saying this is just, this is just garbage. It can also even be a grosser thing. It can mean human excrement, which is feces. Poop. Um, <laughs> I know, we got some lowbrow, some highbrow here. Jesus loves everybody. Um, so, and actually, a lot of commentaries will say that Jesus was actually using, or I'm sorry, Paul was using um, what would be the equivalent for us of a swear word, okay? We won't go any farther with that. Again, talk to your parents on the way home. Um, but this is what, this, this uh, guy named Greg Herrick, he makes a great point here. He says, when Paul talks about these things being garbage, he says, Paul is not condemning the things in his past on the basis of those things themselves. There's nothing wrong with being born a Jew. Nothing wrong with being raised in a devout Jewish home. It was actually a tremendous privilege to belong by birth to the nation that, that was um, a, of promise and one of the most famous tribes within that nation. Um, his zeal, although misdirected, is admirable as the upright life he strove to live. He was moral, he was religious, 
Paul was deeply committed to his people and their heritage. He was a model citizen. He says, listen, there was nothing wrong with any of those things that that he listed off. The problem, the problem isn't with the things themselves, but rather with Paul's approach to them and what he hoped they'd accomplished before God. He was he performed them with the arrogant conviction, and here it is, that because of them, because of those things, that God found him pleasing in his sight. The problem is that he thought God would accept him, God would approve of him because of those things. He says, in such a posture, he was virtually an enemy of God and the gospel. See, here's the problem. If we add anything to the gospel, circumcision, church attendance, if you add anything to the gospel, and it ceases to be the gospel. That's where we come back to our equation. Christ plus anything equals nothing. We add... If, if, if you add anything to Christ, you get nothing. You get no acceptance before God. You're not made right in his sight. You don't get to live in his presence forever. You get nothing. You add anything to the gospel, and you get nothing. Anything to Jesus, and you get nothing. Now, most of us, I, I don't think most of us in this room are not tempted to say, oh, I don't believe Jesus died for my sins. I don't believe that stuff. Okay, there, there are some in a room this size. There are probably some. But for most of us, the, the issue is not believing that Jesus um, is, is, it's not a disbelief in Jesus. It's a disbelief in Jesus alone. That's what we wrestle with. So what we do is we add cargo. We add church attendance. We add moral behavior. Uh, we add baptism. We, we add um, knowledge. Because at the end of the day, we fail to believe and walk in the truth that Jesus is enough. And Satan, by the way, is fine with that. As long as we don't trust in Jesus alone, he goes, hey, be as good as you want. Do all the good things in the world as long as you're looking to those things as a basis for God's approval, as a basis for your salvation. He goes, knock yourself out. But if we don't fling the rest of that cargo overboard and hold on to Jesus and Jesus alone, we're going down with the ship. And on in verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What Paul is saying here, and Warren Wearsby said this very well, he said, There is only one good work that takes the sinner to heaven. One good work that takes the sinner to heaven. And it is the finished work of Christ on the cross. The only good thing that can be done to get us into heaven is something that we could never do ourselves, but that Christ did for us. Have you ever, you ever applied for a job before? I hope so, otherwise you're unemployed. Um, you fill out that resume and you come out, you come up with all these reasons, like why this company should hire you, and it's kind of a, it's a weird process, isn't it? Like, man, I gotta, I gotta basically brag about myself and talk about all the things I've done, and then you're trying to rack your brain, like, I don't, I don't know, I worked at Blockbuster for four months. Like, I don't know if that qualifies me to do brain surgery, but, like, I'll put it down. And so we're just kind of coming up with all this, this list of, like, who we are and what we've accomplished. When we bring our resumes before God, as he's taking these applications for heaven, 
There is only one thing that we can write on that resume, and that's the name of Jesus, written in his blood. And we believe that Jesus was perfect for us, that there's nothing good in us, and by faith we're placed into Jesus. And here's the cool thing, is that when then God looks at us, he's actually looking at Jesus' resume and not our own. So he looks, at, he looks at my resume and he goes, oh, well, Mr. Frankino, I see that you've actually never sinned before. Welcome aboard. You're the perfect guy for the job, right? Because he's looking at what Jesus did on our behalf, not on ours, our, our, ourselves. And I was thinking about my own uh, kind of personal journey, um, and it's similar to Paul's, um, without the whole killing Christians thing. Um, but, but, but I looked at this, and I go, man, you know, he said circumcised on the eighth day. Um, I actually wasn't circumcised till fourth grade, but that's a whole other story. Um, I'll, I'll probably get, I'll probably get a, an email from an elder on that one. You can't say stuff like that, Justin. Um, I grew up in the church, a pastor's kid, no less. I don't know if that counts for more points or less points. Um, both of my parents were Christians. I was a Christian of Christians, right? Both of them were on church staff of the tribe of Grace Brethren. That should count for three points, okay, if we're doing the Grace Brethren thing. Um, you want to talk about good stock. My dad and grandpa went to Grace Theological Seminary. I know, I know. <laughs> it's like the Mecca for Grace Brethren. In regard to the law, I went to church every Sunday. I went to Cubbies, Sparkies, okay? I, I, not just youth group, but I was a youth group leader. Mm-hmm. I, I, I went on every mission trip, every youth conference. I was at every Bible camp. I was a Jesus machine, okay? I never smoked. I never drank. I never had premarital sex. I never partied. I never got in trouble because of my tongue. I, okay, now we're getting carried away. That, that's a bad... <laughs> That's a bold-faced lie. And now I'm a pastor. A pastor, you guys. Like, I am on the top of the spiritual totem, totem pole. Like, I can almost touch Jesus. Almost. Almost. <laughs> and I take that impressive resume, and I hand it to God. And he takes it, and he looks at it. And he whips out a lighter, and he burns it. And it's filthy rags in his sight. Because all of that outward performance will not change my filthy, rebellious, lustful, proud, arrogant heart. The only thing that can change my heart is Jesus. And what he did was he gave me a new heart. He gave me his heart. And now I am accepted before the Father because of Jesus in me. And that is the only grounds that I have to boast on. So I tear up my resume. And I stand before God. And when he says, why should I let you in? I have one word to say. And I say it confidently. And the word is Jesus. The word is Jesus. Why do you put it on your resume? I don't care if this is your first time in church, your millionth time in church. Where is your hope? Like even for people who've been going to church for a long time, a lot of times we think that because we've been going to church for a long time, that God's going to like us, that God's going to accept us because of our performance or because of who our parents were. 
because of what we did, because we, you know, because we said, I asked Jesus in my heart at a young age, if we are not putting our faith alone in Christ alone, if he's not the only thing on that resume, Christ plus anything equals nothing. Next week, we're going to flip it around. We're going to look at the positive side that Christ plus nothing equals everything. And this is where he gets really good. When we come to him in Christ alone, we're going to see everything is ours in Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. But brothers and sisters, we need to preach the gospel to each other every single day. That God is good, we are not, and we need Jesus. Because day after day, the natural inclination of our hearts is try to find something in us to boast about. That's pride. The reason we want to come to God in our own merit is so that we can, we want to be like him. We want to have something to boast about. Or maybe there's some in this room that say, I don't need God. I'm good on my own. And it's still pride. Until we come in humility, recognizing that we fully need to depend on and can only rejoice in Jesus and what he has done for us, and the righteousness that is found in faith alone, we will be a people without joy, a people without purpose, and continuing to try to validate ourselves through our own works and identity. Let's pray. Father, I confess that on a daily basis, I try to find some merit in myself. I try to prove my worth based on who I am or what I've done. And it's tiring, it's exhausting, God to try to get people to like me, to approve of me. And I do the same thing with people in my life that I do with you. God, I pray for myself and for the people in this room this morning. For the grace to trust you more. That we would toss everything else overboard and cling to Jesus alone. And that our hope would be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Father, I ask that you would give us the grace to fall deeper and deeper in love, the relationship with Jesus. That's it. It's all about him. And God, I just confess it so often. I can go through the motions. I can play the church game. I'm here every Sunday. It's my job to be here on the weekdays. But God, if we're not, if we're not truly following, if we're not truly resting, we're not truly rejoicing. Then we're going down with the ship. For the grace to trust you more. Through your son, because of your son, for your son. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.